Welcome to The Last Supper, a weekly podcast featuring emerging and established artists, galleries, curators and collectors in Asia. Hello, I'm your podcast host, Oscar Van Huys. In this episode of The Last Supper, I met curator and art historian Lo Raibo in Chongqing in Hong Kong. We sat down and spoke about her upcoming Picasso exhibition of paintings in glass in the landmark and HKU Museum and Art Gallery. We talked about the state of art in Hong Kong and the challenges artists and art collectors are facing in Hong Kong. Learn more about art in Asia with Christie's Education in-person and virtual art courses, gallery visits and webinars. Visit Christie's Education website and enter all in capital letters Last Supper 15 to enjoy a 15% discount. The website link and discount code for Christie's Education can also be found in the description of this podcast. Welcome, Laura. How are you today? Very well, thank you. And you? I'm excellent. And I really love your place. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I'm looking around your work office space and I see many really interesting works that you have collected. The one I am looking at right now is a photograph that's on the wall. Describe to me what we are looking at. Uh, so this is actually a still from a video from the Burmese artist Onko. And it's actually a performance that he did that was recorded through video. And this is a steal from it. So it's quite interesting to see the different layers of art. The artist is quite politically engaged. And he did some interesting performances in Paris, actually, uh, this year, the past year. It's really about the hopes of the people uh, of Burma, and uh, which are at heart with the government and how the government is kind of stopping them. So it's a beautiful performance in flaming uh, ladders on the Inlay Lake. It's really people reaching for the sky and kind of their opponents trying to burn them and then the lake kind of easing everything. So it's quite engaging. This is actually from a, an exhibition at the Hong Kong Art Center we did a few years ago that was called Mekong New Mythologies. I know we can't discuss all your pieces that you have because that would fill a entire episode by itself, but I do need to know more about the piece behind you. When I walked into this room, it immediately appealed to me and it kind of freaked me out as well because it reminded me of something from a thriller or horror movie. Behind you are two mirrors with two people. So what am I looking at here? So this is a piece by the South African artist, Setambilo uh, Mezrane. And her work, this is her graduation piece. And uh, I got this piece in South Africa when I went. I went to a friend's wedding and I couldn't help but discover the art scene. And her work is amazing because it's really about the representation of women in the South African society and in the context of colonization and the representation of the black body. So on, uh, she used these doors that are mirror doors from a colonial estate that she took away from the estate when the estate was being refurbished. And she used them, she did the serigraph of the photography. And one part is her as a maid and the other one is her as the mistress of the household. So the idea is really different identities, but in both they're self-portrait. So in both it's portraiture for the black body. And it's quite fascinating what she does. Setemberly is really an, an amazing artist. And she used, uh, in her early years of work, she used a lot of furniture type thing, uh, just like these doors. And what happens if you open the doors with the mirrors? With those doors, not much. <laughs> 
no magic. Yeah. Except hopefully some realization of what's going on in the world, but that's it. So there's no secret tunnel or room behind there. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> okay, so let's begin with today's podcast. And I'd like to begin with trying to understand who Lore is. So who is Lore Raibo? Oh, where to start? Well, by nationality, I'm French, but that doesn't really matter in the sense of I've lived in different places and I'm quite fascinated by different cultures. I was trained first in political science and then in archaeology. And I had the utmost luck of meeting a fantastic Chinese concert pianist who is Chinese and who I consider my Chinese grandmother. And she introduced me to Chinese culture. And then I really fell into it. And that's how I started studying Chinese archaeology. That's how I ended up studying in Beijing, including at the Central Academy of Fine Arts. And there was the beginning of a fabulous journey that didn't really stop of working with Chinese artists because I couldn't find a job in archaeology. So then I went for the contemporary side where I could actually, it was also frustrating to have only hypothesis and dead things to work with. So I started talking to artists who can actually answer my questions and it was beautiful. So I would say that I'm kind of a, I see myself as some sort of a visual translator. Artists can't really necessarily put words on what they do. And that's what I tried to do with exhibition. So I worked in the market for quite some time, Christie's, galleries, whatnot. And then I really tried to go nonprofit, uh, which was also my route at the very beginning. So that's what I, I do now, exhibitions. Uh, but I'm not only working with Chinese artists now, I'm working with every culture, nationality, period. That's such an intriguing and colorful background. I think it's the first time I hear the combination of political science and archaeology. But you mentioned your interest in Chinese art and you studied and worked in Beijing. So what brought you to Hong Kong? So Beijing took me to New York and New York took me to Hong Kong. <laughs> That's how it worked. Uh, I had an opportunity to come here uh, in 2011. Uh, originally, we were supposed to set up a foundation with a gallery, a long-standing historical gallery, uh, who was hoping to go more for non-profit. And in the end, it didn't happen, but I followed different paths and uh, it led me to going back to non-profit uh, with the Hong Kong Art Center and then the French May, and then working for myself, but helping different institutions with their projects. Earlier, you described yourself as a visual translator. Is this how you describe yourself to someone who you meet for the very first time? Or how would you describe what you do? Uh, mostly, I do exhibition. And I try to help corporations or institutions with their strategies. So I, I'm mostly a connector. I'd say a connector, a curator, and a project manager. But I mostly do exhibitions. So I try to really showcase artists or context that people may have not seen or thought about. So for recently, we did a show about self-taught artists and the idea was to have like the most recognized people in the art world and then people not just recognized in other worlds and then people that don't have the recognition at all and show that all their work has the same value intrinsically for the audiences. They all are inspired in the same way. And there is a conversation. So it's it's really like having conversation, visual conversations that are not expected. Since you work as an independent curator, do you primarily focus on visual art or have you worked and been involved with other domains of the art as well? We do, but it's not the focus. But uh, yes, we do as well. But I do that more as a hobby. Mm -hmm. 
Now, the reason why we are meeting today is to talk about an upcoming exhibition of a series of works by Picasso that we have not seen in Hong Kong before. So before we talk about the pieces by Picasso, how did you get involved in this project? So a conservative friend calls me one day and tells me, oh, there is this very interesting collection of Picasso in Hong Kong. And since they are in Hong Kong, it would be great to have an exhibition around them. And uh, he said they're very unusual, so you should really go have a look at them. And I did. I was quite surprised by what I discovered. I did some research about them, and they're a very unique technique that is called Gemai, which is actually some sort of glass layering on different pane of glass. It's almost like a puzzle mosaic, but it's a bit more complex than that. And it's backlit with a light box. And at the time, it was considered a very innovative form of art. And so I had never seen anything like it. I'm fascinated by stained glass. My very, very early days in archaeology were Romanesque art. So I'm absolutely fascinated by this kind of art form. And I was amazed when I saw them. They really look fabulous. The way you describe them makes them sound even more mysterious because I have not seen them before. I'm familiar with stained glass technique and have seen many replicas on the internet, galleries and by hobbyists. I imagine very colourful pieces of stained glass, but really multi-layered. It's glass with a lit background, so it's like a light box at the back. So the light comes through the glass, just like a stained glass, but it's artificial light. It's part of the frame, kind of. I am familiar with the stained glass in churches and in some residential houses in Europe you have them as well. Especially the stained glass panels in chapels. They are not only very mesmerizing, but also have a very specific purpose and narrative. What can you say about this technique and why Picasso had an interest in this? Or was it just a coincidence and a kind of random technique he experimented with? I'm not sure it was random. I think they were trying to be very innovative and it's actually very complex. It's a lot more complex than the process of stained glass, which is already complex in itself. But the technique is really layering. That. So it's, it's, there is a depth of field in it. There is a texture and it's actually quite painstaking to create them. So they were created by craftsmen and originally it's the craftsmen who had the idea of reinterpreting the paintings uh, by Picasso with that medium. And when Picasso saw them, he was absolutely amazed and he said a new art is born because he was absolutely fascinated by what could um, be rendered with his designs, his paintings, into that form, actually. What will be on display is not a one-off piece, but a body of work. So, no, it's not a one-off piece. Uh, Among the collection is the first of the artworks that Picasso ever signed, among the ones that were done. Uh, Quite a few were done. We are lucky enough to be able to show 19 of the pieces at UMAG, and uh, there is a preview of six of them. So it's a total of the collection in Hong Kong has actually 23 artworks. There were more done, and some of them are in major museums, like the Corning Museum of Glass in New York. But there were not many, many pieces made, and each and every one of them is unique. So it's not like a lithograph or tapestry reinterpretation of the work it's really a unique rendering of the work 
What can you say about how Picasso got involved in developing these glass works and the historical context of it? So really it's the craftsman who started doing it. And when he first saw what they did, he was so fascinated that he kind of put his hands into it a little bit. And then he just let them reinterpret many different paintings. So he selected himself the painting to be reinterpreted according to the ones that he thought were really exemplary of different periods of his career. So you have things from the blue period, things from the pink period, things from Cubism. Uh, you have, of course, a number of the portraits that are very important to him. Uh, you have studies, from instance, from the Demoiselle d'Avignon, one of his uh, masterpieces. And you also have a lot of other things like still lifes. And so he really tried to be very illustrative and comprehensive in all the different things that he liked to explore in painting, different periods as well different formats in terms of sizes, but he was also picking things that he thought would work really well with light. For him, what was interesting was really this play on light. And he felt cubism and the depth of field of these light boxes were really working well together. And the boxes were all custom made for these glass pieces, or what I mean, the glass works were developed as standalone works that were not to be installed in a window like stained glass pieces. No, no, it was really designed as an art piece in itself. That's where the novelty was. It was designed as a light box, but before the time of light box. So before anything that's to us so obvious today, like light boxes, things like that, any form of media art, this is really like the ancestors of new media somehow. It was designed like a light box. The back of the frame has the electricity devices with neons, And it really was designed for that. It was designed to be hung on a wall, just like a painting, but with a very different effect, a much more captivating effect, because you really don't expect that. And honestly, when you do experience them in person, they are very striking. Uh, so they were designed already in like a new media form. What can you say about the dimensions of this collection of, I think, 19 glassworks? It depends because uh, it depends on the original painting size. So some of them can be as small as the self-portrait from Picasso. The Yo Picasso is, I think, about like, a, it's not very big. It's about 50 by 30, something like that. I can't remember exactly, but it's quite small. Uh, and some of them are literally like almost a meter 60 long or high depending which painting is re being reinterpreted. Because he selected and they tried to reinterpret in the same size. They tried to respect the size. So it was really depending on the original painting. Are you planning to show all the works that are available or did you have to make a selection? We had to make a selection. So there is a preview that is six of the major pieces Uh, that will be at the landmark. So these are really like the portraits or the most important. They're very important milestones in his career. So we really like, we kind of summarize his own selection in a way. Uh, and then at UMAG, we're showing 19. So it's almost the entire collection. And we just left out the pieces that were not necessarily as easy to approach for the audiences that might be a bit more personal like some art critic that it was very close to the portrait of an art critic it was very close to may not be as important as the portrait of Marie-Thérèse, for instance, or of Dohamar. If you like this podcast, I have a small favor to ask that will make a big impact. The Last Supper is offered to you at zero cost. So please subscribe to this podcast and give it a star rating. Many thanks and let's continue. 
One thing that always surprised me is the amount of highly exclusive and blue chip art that we get to see in public places, including shopping malls in Hong Kong and other cities in Asia. I am deliberately saying shopping malls not to diminish the quality of the art, but to emphasize how lucky we are in Hong Kong that we can see this. For those people who are not familiar with Hong Kong, the landmark is in the financial district or central district of Hong Kong, and it's a shopping mall, but a very high-end mall with every luxury brand you can imagine. So I am pleasantly surprised to see Picasso in a shopping mall in Hong Kong. Well, yes. Well, the reality is, yes, it's going to be Picasso in a shopping mall. <laughs> but uh, the point here is really like they wanted to support this exhibition at UMAC. They wanted to be part of the French May. They really want to give back to the community. And the reality is that they have a lot more audiences going through their mall than a lot of other places. It's a hub as well because of the MTR and all that. So, yes, it is a shopping mall, but more so it's just a traffic hub. And uh, then there is a very good opportunity to bring that traffic to UMAG. So they have this motto of like kind of inspire, aspire, that's kind of their slogan, I guess. And they really want to share with the community. So there is, of course, it's, it's a form of give back. There is, of course, their own agenda, but mostly they wanted to highlight some of the pieces. So then people will go to UMAG as well. And they wanted to support the exhibition. It was kind of a, an opportunity because I first went to the French May and discussed about the UMAG, HKU University Museum and Art Gallery, which seems to be the best place in terms of all the academic background that can go with these pieces. But we needed a sponsor. And so that's how we approached Hong Kong Land as well. And they were generous enough to support the show. And that's why after that, we were also thinking, how do we bring traffic and how do we get the best exposure? And it's kind of a win-win situation. I kind of had this situation when I was at the French May and we moved the exhibition to the Chatin Town Hall. Because we put Niki Tsanfal there, suddenly like the audiences were 10 times, no, no, 100 times what they were. It was amazing. I think it is really amazing that we can do this in Hong Kong. I just hope that people in Hong Kong will appreciate it as well because I don't see renowned works, including contemporary artists, appearing in shopping malls in Europe. No, it's not. And it's. Uh, I think it's a, a very interesting way of, despite the context, making art very de democratic. Because sure, it's a luxury mo shopping mall, there's no question. However, again, it's a traffic hub. So how many chances do like everyone that just goes on their work, you know, on their way to the MTR, whatever, have a chance to see these pieces? Would they see these pieces for free? you know, in another context, would they go? Can they go? Do they have the, you know, Hong Kong is a little busy. Do they have the time? So we have examples in my knowledge of public art, art that can be enjoyed or corporate collection in some instances in America, in some instances in Europe, but most of the time it's ticketed venues and there is a big agenda behind it, which is reputation and ticketing value. In this case, it's quite fascinating because, yes, they do support this show and they will show Picasso in a place that will be free and that everybody can go. There is no boundary to it. It's central, super accessible, and it's completely open. And we do tend to, to take these things for granted. But for me, I was absolutely amazed when I found out that the massive Henry Moore sculpture, for instance, there are two of their kind in the world. 
And we are lucky enough, we're privileged enough to be able to be in the, their presence and go experience them for free. The only other place where you can get to see them is either the Moore Estate or there is one example of another sculpture in America, but you would have to go in the private premises of a big corporation to see them. It's not accessible. We can just go and even have lunch next to them. I actually will do this and have lunch next to the glass pieces in the light mark. <laughs> when can we see these glass works? It opens May 1st for the preview in the landmark. And then May 17, May 18, actually, we're opening the UMAC show. The portraits that you have selected for the landmark in Central, can you speak more about why you selected these specific pieces? So again, he was really eager to select uh, important periods of his career. So he selected uh, one important piece in there is a portrait of Marie-Thérèse, one of his uh, lovers and important uh, muse. Then another portrait is Dora Mar. There is the mother and child, which is a portrait of Olga. Uh, there is his own self-portrait. And then there is a beautiful portrait, which is actually from a painting that represents a medieval queen. And that's a very interesting example of his cubism. So he selected the pieces himself at the time he was having them made by the Atelier Roger Malherbe. He selected them according to being representative of different periods. And we try, because we couldn't show everything, to make a selection that would be even maybe like a summary of that representativeness. So we really selected the most iconic ones we could. And we also left a lot of the major pieces for you, Mag, so that especially in terms of sizes and the most impressive pieces, because the point is really to, of course, uh, get as many attention as possible for the audiences in the landmark, but to go and actually visit the exhibition at UMAG. That's the idea. And over there, there'll be amazing pieces, also chosen because they're representative of different styles, not only portraits, but still lifes and everything that really mattered to him in terms of themes. And which period are we talking about when these glass works were made? It's about the period of two years. It's really 55 to 57. And the period of the chosen painting to be reproduced or reinterpreted is much larger. It's literally like it spans his whole career up until that date. But his idea was, they were very, yeah, very short period of time, 55 to 57, and then uh, a lot of exhibition toured around the world in great museums, such as the Metropolitan or the Corning Museum. There was a massive tour in America following their making of all the museums because everybody considered they were the next best novelty in new media. But his idea was really, it's the context that he made them with this Atelier Roger Malherbe. They actually produced them and he signed them, is really after the war. So they have, he has suffered from the war, there's no question. He's a stateless person. He's got, he renounced his Spanish nationality and he was not granted French nationality. So he's stuck in Paris. There is debate about that, but he's still like, he can't really go anywhere. And he decides to stay as well. It's a bit complex, but he endured the war and somehow the suffering of the war still, and he comes out of the war and then the Communist Party comes and kind of recruits him. And the ideals at the time are very pure with the French Communist Party. It's very, very pure, very philosophical and idealistic. And at the same time, having suffered everything he saw, he wants to go against the values that were 
in the wartime and he really wants to be super collaborative and he wants to break all the boundaries and the hierarchies. So he's extremely interested in working with craftsmen and different media that are not considered high arts. He wants to go beyond painting, sculpture, whatever it is that are considered the, high, the pinnacle of the arts. And that's why he started exploring ceramics and tapestry. It's the same time that he works with tapestry artists and he works with the Gemai as well, the Gemai artists from the Atelier Roger Malherbe. That's really the context. It's the context of breaking hierarchies and boundaries and exploring new media, which is also very exciting at the time. So the selection comes from that, really. Do you happen to know why working on glass kind of fell out of fashion? I'm not really sure. I think... Hmm, I'm not really sure why. I don't really understand. Maybe because that was not the appropriate marketing behind it. Maybe because at the time Picasso was so successful that the galleries would rather focus on his best-selling high-figure paintings. I don't really know. But the art world is full of these mysteries that things that are really worth looking may not be acknowledged or recognized. And then they come back later as a discovery. So I don't really have an explanation because it was actually very much in fashion for quite some time. And there were still exhibitions up until, even in Japan, in amazing museum up until the 80s. But at some point, it kind of disappeared. So now we still have exhibition, but they're not considered. I, I saw there were a few exhibitions in France, but they're not considered major at all. He also didn't make that many of them. So that might be a reason. Um, so this is the very first time that these pieces are shown to the Hong Kong and the Beijing public. Yes, it's the first time. It's the first time they're ever shown in Hong Kong. I think it's the first time they're ever shown in China because the only place to my knowledge that had a show in Asia was Japan. And to my and Florian Knott's knowledge, he's, he's the co-curator and the director of UMAG, uh, so the HKU Art Museum and Gallery. It's the only show in Asia celebrating, you know, Picasso on the anniversary of his passing this year uh, in museums. You mentioned Hong Kong and Beijing, but these pieces are also going to Macau, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, yes. So the inaugural opening is in Hong Kong landmark, then the University Museum and Art Gallery or UMAC in Hong Kong. Macau afterwards, and finally Beijing. Yes, so there is the preview at the landmark, then it goes to UMAG, where it stays. Uh, so it's from May 18 to August 27. And after that, it goes to Macau. We don't have the dates yet. And then it will travel to Beijing. My last question about these works is, what surprised or piqued your interest when you were researching these glass works? Hmm, I'm not sure. I was just really fascinated by the open-mindedness of the artist and his idea about collaboration. That's the most striking thing for me. It's really, I didn't expect that. And working with the Atelier Roger Malherbe and then, you know, accepting to, first accepting such a new form of art then, you know, like really celebrating it and using it and signing the pieces, that was the most astonishing thing for me. Now, I also like to hear your viewpoint on Hong Kong's art landscape. I've been here on and off for 20 years and I have seen many changes, especially how the art world has evolved from the early days to now being the largest art powerhouse in Asia and second globally after New York. Because we were forced to stay in Hong Kong, 
I have seen many extremely talented Hong Kong artists and I realize I have lived on the rock and I've been quite ignorant because of my limited and non-existing Cantonese language. So I'm curious about your observations about the arts in Hong Kong, especially during the COVID period and beyond. How would you describe the state of Hong Kong art? From my perspective, it's quite multiple. When I first arrived, well, I came with the hopes of the change of landscape with the M+. I came a few years after it, it was announced. And to us, we were really hoping for this moment of Asia to change the landscape. At the time I arrived, yes, the contemporary art galleries were very scarce and they were mostly local. I started working for Shoni and it's an historical, historical gallery that was doing all the pioneer work along with an arts at the time. Nobody else was working on Chinese and local artists, Hong Kong, Hong Kong artists. So they really, they were, there were still few other galleries. Of course, you still had 10 Chancery Lane and um, a few others. It was still very limited. So I witnessed the arrival of the Western galleries that were trying to, you know, like have a, a free port with no tax for their mainland clients that they were hoping for. And of course, the uh, expansion of the auction houses. So the market itself really expanded, but the big game changer to me was still the institution themselves. And it's not just the M+. The M+, is definitely playing an important role, but it's the renovation of the Museum of Art, where actually that's where I worked on Picasso with the surrealism show from the Centre Pompidou. And it was fascinating to see how they all somehow upped their game. You know, everybody was really into making greater shows and involving the local artists. So there was always like a place, for instance, Key Flam was part of the surrealism show as like the mirroring in Hong Kong, what's, what's the interpretation in contemporary art of what that movement brought about in, in France and Europe. So it was really interesting to see more attention put on the local artist. I think COVID definitely helped in the sense of it was much more market oriented to me before. And the focus had shifted from mainland artists to like Western artists is kind of everybody wanted blue chip of some sort. We had a market for Hong Kong artists. We had a place for Hong Kong artists but it was more limited than what I see today. So today, the Western galleries are not hesitating to represent local artists. For instance, Axel Vervoort is representing Jaffa Lam. To me, it's extremely refreshing. And it's also saying something that, about durability in the sense of, I think it's going to last. I think these galleries are understanding that there is a point in really representing and defending the artists that are local, that have made tremendous uh, contribution locally, but can really be presented on a, a wider stage, an international stage for what their career has been, such as Jaffa. She's not the only one, but she's a good example. And it's really about raising yeah, the, the level of, the, of attention that is given to the Hong Kong artists, especially the ones that may not be just decorative of pleasing. And the ecology is a bit more developed. COVID helped in the sense of we kind of had to focus on our local artists because there was nowhere to go and no one to show. Uh, it was also very difficult to do anything. So I think everybody will kind of try to maintain an activity and continue to foster these artists really contributed to what we're seeing today. So the local galleries or local institutions when they could. And it's quite amazing to see the result because I do think the visibility or the exposure that Hong Kong artists are getting. Also because some of them went abroad, so they got 
interest from people that didn't know them because they didn't have a chance to uh, come to Hong Kong. Everything contributed to making it a lot more sustainable in terms of the attention they're getting. And rightfully so, because their work can be quite unique. I recently met Jaffa Lam as well, and it's amazing how she almost gave up making art until she had a solo show at Axel for Ford. But I will post her episode next week. But finish your tea before we continue. I must confess that we did so many projects with Jaffa, and I always, I was always amazed. Why are they not paying attention to this artist? Like when we did Lumière, also like it's it's the it's one of the program one of the festivals like it's like the French May but really outdoor when we did Lumiere it was obvious for me to select her as one of the major outdoor artists you know for such installation and she's so creative and I love the values of upcycling that go in her work and all the value of community and working with you know like the community of women there is so much to be said and I'm like why is nobody paying attention to her that's what's wrong with them you know and I tried we did museum shows and I tried to place her work in museums and everybody was like kind of timid about it and I was like what are they not seeing and I'm so glad that she did she almost gave up and she was about to just toss the entirety of the studio like a number of Hong Kong artists she's not the only one but yes Axel came and kind of at the right time so I'm very grateful for that because her work definitely deserves a lot of attention and she is an important educator and she fostered herself generations of artists but not just. She, she is really worth the attention. And she's not the only one, but it's a new thing that the galleries are being serious and not just using a Hong Kong artist as a commercial token to get the Hong Kong collectors, which is what they used to do. Like a number of blue chip Western galleries would get one Chinese artist, just use it to bring the Chinese collectors to the gallery and not really support the work. And they did the same thing with the Hong Kong artists. But some people, just like Axel Vervoort, are serious about it. And there are a number of galleries that allowed that to happen. Like Exit Gallery has fostered a number of Hong Kong artists. So their work has been absolutely invaluable in allowing the Hong Kong artists to survive until they would get the proper recognition. And without these galleries, it would not have been possible. Exit is not the only one. Uh, Alisan is working a lot with the ink artist and Angela Lee is working with other artists. Like, but these galleries really have done tremendous groundwork to allow these artists to survive. But for some reason, not for Jaffa. And I was like, very strange. Do you know what changed or why there was a hesitation for collectors because she's been working in Hong Kong for decades? The issue is people, when something is new, people always tend to go for the decorative and easy. It's a bit what whatever is easily matching the couch. It's terrible and sad, but true. And people do prefer to have a pleasing painting or something that is less conceptual. She does things that have very deep meaning. And a number of other artists do that too, but it's not as easy in terms of collectible. It's not something that will easily fit an interior. And so you need people that are serious about collecting. We have some very serious collectors in Hong Kong. Alan Lau, for instance, the IT one that supports the M+. I think it's Low Alan Low, not Lau. <laughs> but I think only these collectors were supporting this kind of artist. And also they have their own focus. So Jaffa was not necessarily collected for that reason. So then she didn't really have an outlet beyond the, all the exhibition. Great exposure but not necessarily collectors. And a gallery of the caliber of Axel Vervoort can change that because that's exactly what they work with. But it 
we don't have a lot of Hong Kong galleries that are able to place these artworks because we don't have enough collectors locally to be interested in these more conceptual pieces. I wonder if the transformation of Hong Kong has forced or motivated artists to be more creative in how they express themselves, to delve deeper in the complexity of meaning, identity, and the social, geopolitical context of Hong Kong, especially with the work that is produced in Hong Kong, which is highly historical and significant. It absolutely is. It absolutely is. It's still hard to figure out exactly what happened, but between the efforts of the institutions, big or small, frankly, like the efforts, M plus is, of course, putting a lot of effort. There's no question. I won't debate here about the M plus topic. That could be a podcast in itself. But they are definitely trying to change the scene. And the efforts of other places, like even UMAG, making a lot of effort to really showcase even local artists. They, they do that as well. Uh, I think we are witnessing an historical moment where the artists in Hong Kong are looked uh, through different lenses instead of just a decorative or easy lens. And it doesn't matter anymore how commercial they are, which was a big concern before. I think things have shifted in the art world in general. For instance, I think it's almost five years ago that like, we saw artists like Rufasawa or you know artists that were unknown in their lifetime somehow because their practice, their art form were not really considered collectible, maybe a bit too vernacular or whatnot. And we've seen a lot of different movement in recognition of different groups of artists, whether culturally different in their expression. And Hong Kong, with, with also its special circumstances of the past few years, but everything has allowed for a greater form of expression to be recognized. So a lot more artists are finding ways to be seen and to sustain their careers. I have spoken about this previously and without repeating myself, what makes living in Hong Kong so fascinating is the dichotomy of multiple worlds or this multiverse of seemingly different moralities and narratives. While Hong Kong is going through a transformation of constant and rapid change, on Lama Island, where I live, the temple appears to be entirely different and it is strange that despite all the dramatic changes and civil unrest we have, simultaneously life on Lama Island, where I live, appears to continue as normal. This is such a weird and bizarre experience and I wonder how you are dealing with this. It is really weird, but just like any upheaval, just like Picasso with the war, you know, just like any upheaval or big changes... I think there is the personal experience and then there is the overall kind of cultural changes or yeah, upheaval, really. It's something that creates a context, for sure. It's something to be discussed, for sure. However, yeah, how much is the personal impact? So when you're an educator like Jaffa Lam or myself at PolyU, of course, you see things differently because there were unrest with the students and... You, you see it very differently. Now, for the artists, uh, in terms of politics, of course, there is a lot of changes and they see it through a different lens. Some of them have even decided to leave because they don't feel they are able to express themselves fully anymore. Personally, I was raised by uh, people that believe you, um, you stay. <laughs> it's quite fascinating. I think it created the, everything that happened, COVID, 
the unrest, our positioning with mainland China or the rest of the world, for that matter, has really just created circumstances for expression, really. That's what it is. And not necessarily political. The work doesn't have to be political. So it's a bit like, yeah, it didn't change your day life, didn't change my day life that much. I don't know how much it changed the day life of artists. It certainly changed their mind. But that for the ones who stayed or even the one who decided to go, it just created a completely new horizon somehow for how they will express themselves or if they want to pursue the same vein but still find different ways of expressing themselves in the same like Jaffa her work is not immediately political she continues to create she's not giving up and the point is really for her to continue to have the discourse she always had she keeps somehow perfecting it in terms of its visual expression but it won't affect her in, in a sense that it will affect her her art in a in a negative way, quite the contrary. I'd like to hear your viewpoint on the following as well. There is an argument that the restrictions that have been introduced in Hong Kong has had the opposite effect and instead has motivated artists to be more conscious about how they express their feelings, thoughts and critique. Artists in Hong Kong now need to be more nuanced, ambiguous in how they develop their work. And the limitations have somehow forced people to think more creatively. What is your perspective on this? Yes, I think it's the case not only for the artists, but for the galleries themselves. So again, like back to the ecology, I forgot to mention earlier, but we had a number of new galleries, like empty gallery or whatnot. Like uh, even in other places, we have galleries in Cham Po, you know, like I think it's it's a greater ecology and that gives a greater platform for these artists. So then they don't have to confine themselves to expressing themselves with the commercial galleries. But... What I have seen is definitely like because of the exposure to more international artists, international practices, they have certainly like find ways of perfecting their own art forms. One thing that is really worth mentioning about Hong Kong is for some reason they were always pioneering movements. Like even in Inc., the new Inc. movement is really born in Hong Kong. So even though it's not as striking visually, these are really revolutions in terms of artistry. So somehow, even despite a colonial um, you know, background, which was the time of the New Ink movement, or despite the, the times we know today, artists in Hong Kong have always found ways to being pioneers, expressing themselves in avant-garde ways. And again, perfecting what they do, that's very true. So it's not only ambiguous, it, it is um, a level of subtlety, but it's also like uh, the bar has been raised by the artists themselves because they were confronted to other forms of art uh, that they saw from the outside. And so that's one thing that was brought to Hong Kong, both by the commercial system, the old art Basel, whatnot, the Western galleries, and also by the institution themselves. So overall, it's raising the bar and... Even the work of some artists have benefited from being like more achieved in professional ways, more achieved in their actual crafting, because the standards are different. When you reflect on art that is available and developed in Hong Kong, do you feel there is a Hong Kong kind of art movement or style that signifies what is happening at the moment? I do think so. I do think so. 
It's hard to describe because you have a huge difference between the art of Stephen Wong and the art of Jaffa Lam or Hong Kong. Or Some artists came from the mainland, some artists were born here. That doesn't really relate to their practice. What I've seen is most of the artists I've met here, they're rather profound, humble, and uh, very dedicated to what they do. And that's quite fascinating. Maybe because somehow they were deprived of some of the comforts that uh, some of the other artists have elsewhere. It's definitely not easy just in terms of having the studio space. The cost of things are way higher in Hong Kong than they would be anywhere else. So it's always like deciding to be an artist, you really have to be dedicated and you will have to make sacrifices. So in terms of style, I don't think there is a style. I think it's just, yeah, like a, a level of dedication, really. And what I think is common to them is being passionate about what they express and somehow passionate about the context they live in. But you'll have artists like Keith Lam or Hong Kong or that will express themselves in ways that are more technologies. And then you'll have artists like Stephen Wong that would be, you know, like, giving you a whole new perspective on landscape in Hong Kong. All of them, I guess, have in common the, the passion. That's, that's it, I think. What attracts you to the Asian art environment and what keeps you in Hong Kong as an art curator? I really like being in the vibrancy of Hong Kong. It's very demanding, but we always, as you mentioned, as we were coming up together, like it's, people are always approachable. It's wonderful. It's wonderful to be able to have these conversations with famous people and not famous people and do these things. I think it's amazing. It's amazing to be able to still like, yeah, break these boundaries. Uh, I think we did fantastic projects. And again, the self-taught artist project was amazing to be able to put in the same show Ellen Pao was like the highest level of art world recognition, Guggenheim, whatnot, Venice Biennale. And then have artists, you know, that are super famous, but only almost in the local level, like Louis Sohn. Having this uh, person from Changsha Chen Sing was doing art brut from his daily work as, you know, like a street sweeper and a garbage collector. And bringing that in the light as well with Saiza Cruz Bacani, who's actually like Magnum Prize, and see all these different levels that normally don't talk to each other and wouldn't be put in the same show normally. But we can do that here. We can explain to people that they can be inspired by all these different artists, no matter how each different world is recognizing them. That it really, what matters is the audience experience, each and every one person experience. And it's not many places in the world where you can actually break these boxes that people normally put artists into and that artists see themselves into. Because I don't know of many artists that would agree to such a show to be alongside these other artists without being offended one way or another. And everybody was very open-minded and fascinated by this idea of like, yes, they all have completely different world of recognition, but they all express themselves in art. And uh, that's what mattered. Yes, those working in the Hong Kong arts are very open and very collaborative. Of course, there are always exceptions, but I do enjoy the hospitality of the people I meet 
whether they are artists, galleries, curators or collectors, I like the pace the Hong Kong art scene moves, especially if you compare it with Europe and US, where it appears to be a lot more established. Yeah, it is. And the galleries even like are very willing to be open to collaboration. Like for, for that show, we worked with Kyung Malang and they were not possessive of the artist at all. They were very happy that the artist, Ellen Pao in that regard, was able to do an, another type of show, even though she was very busy with other things that bring her a lot more recognition. But they were also open to this kind of discourse and this kind of presentation. So exactly what you say, like in my experience with European and American galleries, it's been very difficult because they tend to be very possessive of the artist and whatever box they want to put this artist or caliber level they want to put the artist into and then it becomes very difficult to have more interesting discourses that have not been mainstream so you have the reproduction of the same discourse and you, nothing is really fought outside of the box even when it pretends to be fought outside of the box everybody's saying the same thing so it's wonderful here to be able to do that and there is a freedom in that regard Let's end this podcast with the final question about The Last Supper. If you were to have your last supper, who would you invite? My God, my last supper. The very last one. I'd have to bring my mom in because <laughs> she's my mom. And, you know, if it's the last time I have to have her around, I would definitely bring my partner, who's also an artist, Olga Nitka. I'd bring Jaffa for sure. <laughs> for sure because I would have the most interesting and affectionate conversations with her and we had great adventures so I think if it's the last supper it's really about all these great adventures we had together and the fact that yes there were many obstacles we wanted to bang our heads against the wall so many times but it worked out in the end Thank you, Laura, for inviting me to your place in Cheung Chao. All the best with your upcoming show, and I'll see you soon again. Thank you, Oscar, for having me. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Last Supper with curator Laura Bo. If you enjoyed listening to The Last Supper, make sure you subscribe or follow this podcast, give it a star rating, or leave a comment because your support will help to raise the awareness of art in Asia. Please check the additional information in this podcast description. And before you go, the Last Supper podcast supports the Hong Kong Art Gallery Association, a member-based non-profit organization of established local and international art galleries in Hong Kong.